Chapter 46 of The Grey Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeremiah Sutherland, Victoria, British Columbia. The Grey Man by S. R. Crockett. Chapter 46 The Judgment of God. The court of the Baron Bailey of Carrick broke up in confusion. It had been arranged that we should ride all together to the north, even to Colain, where His Majesty might have due entertainment provided for him nearer than at my lord's castle of Cassillis. Also it was upon this shoreside road that he had left the Earl of Mar and the favoured attendants, with whom James the Sixth ordinarily sallied forth to the hunting. Those of the Auchendrain and Bargany party who hated us clamoured that the Dominie and I should be left warded in the lockfast place of Girvan, where our enemies would have soon ta'en their will of us. But Robert Harburg moved my lord, who went about dour and heartsick for the failure of his plans in the matter of the Muirs, to have us brought on with purpose to lodge us within the ancient strengths of Dunur. So that as I rode hand-tied at the tail of the king's retinue, I was yet near enough to have sight of Marjorie and Nell who rode before us. And this was some comfort to my heart, the way lay for miles along the seashore, which is here sandy, with a broad belt of fine hard beach whereon the horses went daintily and well, while at our left elbows the sea murmured. The king and John Muir rode first, and his majesty constantly broke into loud mirth at some witty saying of his companions. Level with them but riding moodily apart was the earl, while James Muir the younger rode alone by himself behind these three. I groaned within me for the exaltation of our enemy and at the short-sightedness of anointed kings. Is there a God in heaven, I cried aloud, thus to make no sign, while the devil is driving all things headlong to destruction according to his own devising? There was a God in heaven. For quick as an echo that answers from the wood, there before us upon the sands, just where the levels had been overflowed at the last tide, lay a thing which halted the advancing cavalcade as suddenly as an army with banners. The men crowded about, and having in the excitement forgotten us their charges, we also were permitted to look, and this is what we saw. Thereupon the ribbed sea-sand lay the dead body of the boy William Dalrymple. I knew him at a glance for all that so much had come and gone since that day when I played at the golf game upon the green of Maybole. He lay with his arms stretched away from his sides, his face turned over and one cheek dented deeply into the sand. It was a pitiful sight. Yet the lad was not greatly altered, wind-tossed and wave-borne as he had been, and now brought to cross the path of the unjust at the very nick of time by the manifest judgment and providence of God. What means this? said the king. Some poor drowned sailor-boy. Let us avoid. For of all things he loved not gruesome sights nor the colour of blood. But James Muir suddenly cried aloud at the vision, as if he had been stricken with pain and as he did so his father looked at him as though he would have slain him, so devilish was his glance of hate and contempt. But a woman who had come running hot-foot after the party now rushed to the front. She gave a loud scream, ear-piercing and frantic, when she saw the tossed little body lying all abroad upon the sand. "'My Willie, my ain son Willie!' she cried, for it was Meg Dalrymple. All her ignorant rudeness seemed to fade away in the presence of death, and as she lifted the poor mishandled head that had been her son's, each of us felt that she grew akin to our own mother's, widowed and bereaved. For I think that which touches us most in the grief of a widow is not our feeling for a particular woman, 
but our obligation to the mother of all flesh. So when Meg Dalrymple lifted her son's head, it might have been a mourning queen with a dead kingling upon her knee. My ain, my ain lad, she cried. See, lammy, but I loved ye. Ye were the widow's eye son, fleeter-footed than the mountain roe, mare gleg than the falcon that sits yonder on the king's wrist. Ye were the hope of thy mither's life. And they have slain ye, killed my bonny ween, that never did harm to Naaman. She undid a kerchief from about the white, swollen neck of her son. Can's any man that image and superscription, said she, pointing to an embroidered crest upon it. John Muir strode forward hastily. He had grown as pale as death. Give it me. I will pass it to his majesty, he said, holding out his hand for it. But the woman leaped up fiercely. Nah, she said, the butcher kens his knife, but he would only hide it in the day of trial. I will give it to my ain well-kenned lord. And she put the napkin into the hands of the Earl of Cassillis, who looked at it with the most minute attention. This kerchief, said the Earl gravely, has the crest and motto of John Muir of Auchendrane. The king looked staggered and bewildered. Let all dismount till we try further of this thing, he said. But John Muir would have had him go on, saying that it was yet more of the plot. But the king would not now hearken to him, for he was an obstinate man, and oftentimes he would listen to no reason, though his ear was ever open enough to flattery. Besides, he thought himself to be the wisest man in all the islands and kingdoms of the world, wiser even than Solomon the son of David. So his majesty commanded his inclination, and went up to the body. There was also a rope around the neck with a long end, which was embedded in the sand. With his own hand the king drew this out. He held it up. "'Kens any man this length of rope?' he asked, looking about. "'Now, one strand of sea cordage is like another as two peas, but this was our Solomon's way of judging, to find out the insignificant, and then pretend that it told him a mighty deal. Yet it so happened that there was a man there from out of the shore-side of Girvan. He was a coastwise sailor, and he took the rope in his hand. "'This rope,' he said, turning it about every way, "'is Irish-made, and has been used to tie bundles of neat hides.' And who, again asked the king, shrewdly as I do admit, who upon this coast trades with Ireland in the commodity of neat hides? There are but myself and James Bannatyne of Chapel Donan, replied the man, honestly and promptly. And this is not your rope, said the king? Nay, said the man, I would not buy a penny worth of Irish hemp so long as I could twine the hemp of Scotland. No, not even to hang an Irishman would I do it. This is James Bannatyne's rope. Then said the king, Bring hither James of Chapeldonan. And they brought him. He stood forth, much feared indeed, but taking the matter dourly, like the barley ruffian he was. Nevertheless, when put to the question, he denied the rope, and that in spite of all threats of torture. Yet I could see that the king was greatly shaken in his opinion, and knew not what to think. For when John Muir drew near to touch his arm, and as before say somewhat in his private ear, the king drew hastily away and looked at Auchendrain's hand as though there had been pollution upon it. So I knew that his opinion was wavering. Also the poor body in the mother's arms daunted him. Suddenly he clapped his hands together and became exceedingly joyous and alert. I have it, he cried, the ordeal of touch. It is God's ordinary and manifest way of vindicating his justice. Here is the dead body of the slain. Here are all the accused and the accusers. Let it be equally done. Let all touch the body for the revealing of the secrets of the hearts of wicked men. 
Then John Muir laughed and scoffed, saying that it was but a fright, a foolish opinion, an old wives' fable. But for all his quirksome guile he had gotten this time very mightily on the wrong side of the king. For his majesty was just mad with belief in such things as omens and miracles of God's providence. So the king shook him off and said, It is my royal will that all who are tainted with the matter shall immediately touch or be held guilty. And the saying comforted King James, being, as it were, easily pleased with his own words and plaques. So they brought us forward from among the crowd bound as we were, and first of all I touched fearlessly the poor dead body of the lad. Yet it was with some strange feeling, though I knew well that I was wholly innocent. But yet I could not forget that something untoward might happen, and then good-bye to this fair world and all the pleasant stir of life within it. Then after me the dominie touched, even Marjorie and Nell doing it with set faces and strange eyes. It was now the turns of the real murderers, and my heart beat little and fast to see what should happen. Let Auchendrain the younger touch first, being the most directly accused, cried the king. But James Muir seemed to flame out, suddenly distract, like a madman being taken to Bethlehem. He cried out, No, no, I will not touch. I declare that I will not go near him. And when John Muir strove to persuade him to it, he struck at him fiercely with his open hand, leaving the stead of his fingers dead white upon his father's cheek. And when they took his arm and would have forced him to it, he threw himself down headlong in the sand, foaming and crying, I will not touch for blood, I will not touch for blood. But in spite of his struggling, they carried him to where the body lay. And all men standing back, they thrust his bare hand sharply upon the neck where the rope had been. And it is true as scripture, I that right declare, though I cannot explain it, out from the open mouth of the lad there sprang a gout of black and oozy blood. Whereat a great cry went up, and James Muir fell forward on the sand as one suddenly stricken dead. All crowded forward to see, crying with one voice, The judgment of God! The judgment of God! And I shouted too, for I had seen the vindication of justice upon the murderer. The blood of Abel had cried out of the waste sea sand. The mark of God was on the guilty. Then suddenly in the midst of the push I heard a stirring and a shouting. Stop him! Stop him! they cried. I looked about, and lo, there, sitting erect upon his horse and riding like fire among heather was John Muir. He had stolen away while all eyes were on the marvel. He had passed unregarded through the press, and now he rode for his life southward along the shore. I gave one mighty twist to the manacles on my wrists, and whether those that set them had been kindly, being of my own name and clan, or whether the gyves were weak, I cannot tell. At all events my hands were free and so, with never a weapon in my possession, I leaped on a horse, the same indeed which the king had been riding, and set it to gallop after the man whose death was my life. It was the maddest, foolishest venture, for doubtless my enemy was well armed. But I seemed to see my love, and all the endowment of grace and favour I was to receive with her, vanishing away with every stride of John Muir's horse. Besides, there was a king and an earl looking on, so upon the king's horse I settled down to a long chase. I was already far forward ere behind me I heard the clatter of mounting men, the crying to rest of horses to stand still, and the other accompaniments of a cavalcade leaping hastily into the saddle. But when I looked at John Muir upon his fleet steed, and saw that I upon the king's horse but scarcely held my own, I knew that the stopping of the murderer must be work of mine if it were to be done at all. 
so I resolved to chance it in spite of whatever armory of weapons he might carry. But first I cleared my feet of the great stirrups which the king used, so that if it came to the bitter pinch, and I was stricken with a bullet or pierced with steel, I should not be dragged helpless along the ground with my foot in the iron, as once or twice I had seen happen in battle. And that, though uneasily memorable, is, I can bear witness, not a bonny sight. My charger stretched away as though he had been a beagle running conies of the down into their holes. But John Muir's horse went every whit as fast. I saw well that he made for the deep, trackless spaces of Killochan wood. The oak trees that grew along its edge stretched out their arms to hide him. The Birkenshaw waved all its green boughs with a promise of security. I shortened my grip upon the stout golden-crowned staff which the king carried at the pommel of his saddle. Yet as John Muir drave madly towards the wood, and sometimes looked over his shoulder to see how I came on, I was overjoyed to notice a wide ditch before him which he must needs overleap, and at that business, if at no other, I thought to beat him, being slim and of half his weight. So I kept my horse to the right upon better ground, though it took me a little out of the straight course for the wood. His horse at the first refused the leap, and I counted upon him as mine. But I counted too soon, for he went down the bankside a short way to an easier place, where there was a landward man's bridge of trees and sods. Here he easily walked his horse across, and having mounted the bank, he waved his hand at me, and set off again toward the wood. But now, while he had an uneven country to overpass, I had only the green fields, rich in old pasture, and undulating like the waves of an oily tide when the sea is deep, and there is no break of the water. He was at the very edge of the wood when I came upon his flank. Then I gave a loud shout as I set my horse to his speed and circled about to head him off. But John Muir, though an old man, only settled himself firmer in his saddle, and with his sword in his hand rolled soldierly and straight at the wood, as though I had not been in front of him at all. It was wisely enough done, for his heavier beast took mine upon the shoulder and almost rolled me in the dust. He came upon me, not front to front as a rider meets his foe in the lists, but as it were stem to side, like two boats that meet upon converging tacks. Yet I managed to avoid him, being light and supple, though he leaned far over and struck savagely at me as he passed. Again at the third shock he had almost overridden me and made me die the death. But I had not practiced horsemanship and the art of fighting in the saddle so long for nothing. Indeed, on all the seaboard of air, there was no one that could compare with me in these things. Therefore it was easy for me, by dint of my quickness and skill, to swerve off to the right and receive the sword stroke in my cloak, which I carried twisted about my left arm. Then keeping still between the wood and John Muir, I met him this time face to face, with my eyes watching the direction of his eye and the crook of his elbow, that I might know where he meant to strike. For a good sworder knows the enemy's intent, and his blade meets it long ere thought can pass into action. So it was no second sight which told me that he meant to slash me across the thigh when he came anigh me. I knew it or ever his blade was raised, so that when he struck I was ready for him and measured his sword, proving my distance as it had been upon parade. And as the blade whistled by me, I judged that it was my turn, and struck him with all the force I could muster, a crashing blow, upon the face, with the heavy butt of the king's stave, which stunned and unsettled him, so that he pitched forward upon his horse, yet not so as to lose his seat. Nevertheless, owing to the swing of my arm, the stroke fell also partly upon his horse's back, which affrighted the beast, and set him harder than ever to the running. 
so that I was past ere I knew it, and the wood was won. But I was not thirty yards behind him, and looked to make the capture ere we reached the further side. And but for a foul trick I should have done it. It so happens that there is a little hill in the woods of Kilochan, and I, seeing that John Muir was riding about one side, took round the other, thinking that I had the shorter line of it. But he, as soon as he saw me make round the corner, turned his horse into its own hoof-marks and sped away back again, as it had been to meet them that pursued, but at the same time bearing enough to the south to clear them easily. So that when I came round the hill I saw no quarry, and only heard the boughs crashing in his wake. Nevertheless, without the loss of a moment, I took the line of his retreat, as I thought, yet not so correctly, but that when I issued forth from the wood, I saw him nigh half a mile in front. Again he waved a contumelious hand which made me so fiercely angry that I tightened my waist-belt, and vowed to go no more to sunny Culain if I took not back the head and hands of John Muir at my saddle-bow. So with set and determined brow I rode ever forward. It was the cast of the die for me, for Nell herself, our life together, and our green pastures and lavender-scented napery cupboards were all to come out of the catching of this enemy of our house. It is small wonder, therefore, that I was passing keen upon the matter. Yet in spite of my endeavours I gained but little, and it was already greying to the twilight when I came to a place by the seashore, waste and solitary, where there were but few houses about. I had seen John Muir ride in thitherwards, and so I followed him full tilt, reckless of danger, being weary heart with the ill fortune of my riding and quest. But as I entered the narrows of the pass, a stone flew from an ambuscade. I felt a hot stunning blow upon the head, and with the pain I remember laying hold of my horse's mane, and gripping tight with the hand on which a broken manacle still jangled. Something warm flowed over my brow, and suddenly I saw everything red, as though I had been looking through the stained glass of some ancient kirk, red flowers, red grass, red sand, and red sea. That was all I saw, and I do not remember even falling to the ground. End of chapter 46